Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, um, and welcome to this wonderful um, platform event uh, where Nicholas Heitner will be talking about Othello. I'm uh, called Kate Moss, and I'm a novelist and a playwright, and I'm interviewing someone who, in the f as the phrase goes, needs no introduction. Um, it, it, of course, suffices to say uh, that Nick is not only the director of the National Theatre, but someone who has transformed film, theatre, opera, over many, many years of a career. Um, ten years ago, you came here, and one of your very first productions was Henry V, with a young actor called Adrian Lester in the lead. And now here we are, ten years later, um, with Adrian playing Othello in your production of Othello. And what I, I suppose I wanted to know to start with was in something where Adrian has said he has been waiting to do this, that he's written in the press about Sam Mendes first approaching him and then Sam going. Um, have you been waiting to do Othello? Did you go to him and say, it's our time to do this? Did he come to you? Was it Rory Kinnear who's playing Iago? How does something so big come together, a project like this? When we were doing Henry V, uh, I s said to him that, we should do Othello at some point, uh, but that there was absolutely no hurry. Uh, and that was the deal we made. Uh, it feels very important to me that uh, Othello uh, is not in the first flush of youth, that the age gap between him and Desdemona uh, is, uh, is, is important, uh, which we can come back to. So. It, it did feel as if we would, um, we would probably wait 10 years or so, and then five or so years ago, I spoke to Rory Kinnear about playing Hamlet and Iago. So uh, for five years, uh, I've had the, uh, the team in place, really, and uh, there was never any hurry, uh, and now seemed the time to do it. And when you um, were starting, everybody's tiptoeing towards the moment that this, this production is going to come together, and you're putting a team together. Um, do you have, as the director, you particularly, have a sense of the sort of play you want to do, the texture of it, the smell of it, or is that something that you all together work on? I had a very shrewd suspicion that the world of the play would feel uh, much like it turned out to be. Uh, if you come to the National a lot and see Shakespeare here a lot, um, you'll know that, uh, that I do believe that these plays almost invariably work if you treat them as contemporary plays. As it happens, I personally have not done that every time. I've done eight Shakespeare plays at the National, five of them have been played as contemporary plays, three of them have been played more or less in period. But they do, al they do almost always work like this because they were written as contemporary plays. They were written as contemporary plays, they were written about London, um, whether or not they're set in London. In fact, they never are set in London, very rarely set in London. Uh, so the idea that it was a play um, which took place largely uh, in an army base uh, amongst military men who have nothing to do because the war they were supposed to be fighting is not happening. That came, uh, that, 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 that was there from the beginning. Adrian Rory and a, a, a couple of other actors and I spent a few days at the studio, the National Theatre Studio, a few months ago, um, reading the play in some detail, wondering whether 
this was indeed the way we wanted to do it, and it turned out that it was. Uh, the barriers between uh, Othello being a contemporary play uh, and the text of Othello seemed pretty easy to circumvent. There are one or two things which, uh, which we have um, either omitted uh, or, or um, tiptoed around, but there's very, very little in this play um, that uh, that, that doesn't work um, with uh, the immediacy of a contemporary play. I mean, I'm, I'm sure people have either seen it or you're going to see it tonight or will be seeing it. Um, it is astonishing. Um, and when we were talking before we came on, I saw it on Tuesday night and I felt for the first time, because it was set in the world of men, I of a soldier's base, because we see on the television, the consequences of Iraq, Afghanistan, those places. So we are used to seeing soldiers at play and at work, if you like. It made sense to me, the sense of why Othello trusts his Iago so much, because they have put their lives on the line together for all of their lives. It's a longer thing. Did you have that sense of brotherhood at the heart of it when you started in the base? Yes. Uh I've I've seen the play a reasonable amount. Um, you have to set it among soldiers. It's about soldiers. Uh, I think it's a play which um, I find is muffled by a decorative approach. And almost always, if you set a play in the past, there is an element of decoration involved. Whether the past is 400 years ago or 50 years ago, uh, one is inviting a sense of nostalgia, a sense of comfortable distance. That seems the best reason um, to just plunge it into the here and now. Uh, so, although I've always seen it, really, um, set amongst soldiers, to draw upon um, the imagery of the modern army um, was extremely useful. Uh, and you're right, um, as, soon as, as soon as you can uh, present an audience here uh, with uh, the kind of army base that they recognize, not necessarily because they've been on one, I would bet that very few people here have been on one, and it's one of the biggest differences between you, the London audience now, and the London audience in 1604. A large portion of the London audience in 1604 will either have led a soldier's life or at least known someone very well who had led a soldier's life. Uh, they would have, in the pit of the Globe in 1604, listened to Iago, in the first long speech of the play, complain about being overlooked for promotion in favor of a young arithmetician, young Michael Cassio or Florentine, um, who's never set a squadron in the field, nor the, div nor the division of a battle knows more than a spinster. Uh, that's playing to the pit. There's lots of blokes in the pit who would feel as resentful as Iago that this young Florentine, this Oxford and Sandhurst educated officer, has been promoted above him. Uh, that's hard to recapture. It's impossible to recapture um, the um, uh, proportion of, uh, of uh, military folk in the, uh, in the audience. But what you can do is say, this is the world. But I do want to stress this. Uh, one of the remarkable features of the play is that it has absolutely nothing to say about military conflict whatsoever. The play, uh, and I think we've gone to some trouble, uh, I hope, uh, to uh, recognize 
that the play's politics evaporate after one act out of five. Uh, say you're a practiced Shakespearean audience and you've never seen the play, say you're Shakespeare's audience. Or say, and I've had several uh, friends over the last 10 days who I've so envied because they've never seen the play before and they know little about it except that it ends badly. Um, <laughs> and I would, I would love to see any Shakespeare play under those circumstances. And I, and I, I, I do remember um, some of the occasions when I first did. You would think, I know where the way this play is going. Uh, here is the government of Venice. Um, and here is the hero, Othello. I know he's the th hero because um, his name is the, n the title of the play. Uh, and I find out about him very quickly, that he is um, uh, African-born, uh, a Christian convert. Uh, I don't necessarily know uh, that he is a Muslim convert, but I can pretty well work that out. And here is Venice fighting for control of Cyprus, a complete fiction, by the way. Uh, th uh, the uh, Ottomans had control of Cyprus more or less all the way through the, uh, uh, the, the 16th century. Uh, but in the play, the Venetians are fighting the Ottoman Empire, the Muslim, the Muslim Ottoman Empire for control of Cyprus. You think, I'm this, I know how this playwright works. There's a clash of civilizations, uh, West, East, Christian, Muslim, and here, it's a hero who has converted from one to the other. Uh, there's going to be a big war, and in the middle of it, this guy's going to be torn apart by the, his, the, uh, his own, own internal conflict. And then Shakespeare pulls the most extraordinary trick, which is big build-up, big war, cut to Cyprus, and within a minute and a half of being in Cyprus, actually within seconds of being in Cyprus, you hear that the Turkish, the Turkish fleet has drowned, not a shot fired. And the point is, he's setting you up for a play which has a huge political, military political underpinning, and he then pulls that right away, and you're left uh, with these soldiers on base with nothing to do. And, and a, a woman who shouldn't be there. A woman who absolutely shouldn't be there. And uh, I worked closely with a, a fascinating advisor on this play, uh, Major General Jonathan Shaw, recently retired uh, from the army. He was Commandant General of the Paris, who has been in command in, uh, in Basra, uh, in, uh, in Kosovo, and uh, started his army career fighting in the Falklands. Um, he was re really bothered by, um, by Desdemona being, uh, being in this play. Uh, <laughs> There's a brilliant article by him in the programme. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of one of the best articles yes. on Shakespeare uh, that I've ever yeah. read. I, re I, I really <laughs> recommend it. But, uh, but he kept stressing how absolutely out of the ordinary it was uh, for a commanding officer, particularly uh, given that he thinks he's going to be fighting a violent war, uh, to bring his wife. And... Uh, it's one of the many things, many fault lines, which Iago is able to exploit. And it's this great Belgian hothouse, this appalling kind of, um, I'm coming out with all the metaphors now, this pressure cooker that gets set up where one man can completely take apart another man. And I think in the end, what the play is interested in above all things, I think it's one of Shakespeare's great interests, um, is the fragility uh, of um, the, fragi the, the fragility of um, of the 
constructions that we make of ourselves. Uh, why is Othello all the things that he is in this play? Why is he um, uh, at least twice as old as Desdemona? Uh, why does he have such an odd way of speaking? Why is he African? Uh, why is he a general on base with no war to fight, which he's not very used to, with his wife? All these things expose him to a kind of personality collapse. Uh, I think Shakespeare has chosen to write a play about um, a Moorish general promoted from the ranks, not even, Jonathan Shaw writes very interestingly about this too, not even born to command, not born to be a member of the Venetian establishment, uh, who, I believe, has taught himself an extraordinarily um, orotund, over-eloquent way of speaking because uh, he has to sit at a top table he was not born to. Uh, so he's always pretending. All there is, th th there is he, he is an extreme version of all of us. We all of us have to put on an act mm. to be in the world. Mm. Uh, I think Shakespeare is very interested in what happens when that act is no longer sustainable and you are forced to confront um, some version of who you really are. I think Hamlet's about that as well, by the way. So, but I think that's why Shakespeare's a more. And I'm going to, even without you asking, sorry, Kate. I'm <laughs> no, no, even, this is brilliant. Even without you Easiest asking the question, I've had. I'm going to just briefly deal with, um, because uh, it, I think it probably can be dealt with pretty easily, the element of race and racism in this play. The history of the production of this play, the history of the performance of this play, is much more about racism than the play is. Uh, I like to compare the play, you're all of you experienced theatre-goers, uh, to The Merchant of Venice. These are the two plays which are set in Venice. Uh, Othello only partly set in Venice. The first act is set in Venice. They're the plays uh, which are um, about uh, the Venetian oligarchy. The Duke of Venice, the Doge, appears in both plays. There is not a page of The Merchant of Venice, at least a page that involves Shylock, which isn't obsessed with his Jewishness. Uh, they define Shylock in terms of his Jewishness. He's evil, he's bad, he's avaricious, uh, he's a cheat, he's vengeful because he's a Jew. Uh, when they use the word Jew, they use it derogatorily, derogatory always. Uh, and Shylock is, is also extraordinarily conscious of himself as a Jew and has um, some wonderful stuff uh, about what it's like uh, to be a Jew in an anti-Semitic world. Very few people are actively racist in Othello. Uh, they refer to Othello as the Moor, but I don't think they use the Moor as a derogatory term. Mm -hmm. I think they use the... the well, they, like they could say the Limey or the Pom. It or mean the Dane. Yeah. The Dane. They, uh, Hamlet refers to himself as the Dane. I don't, think I don't actually think it goes much further than that. Those who are racist... Uh, are predisposed to hate Othello anyway. Uh, Brabantio, the father of Desdemona, has a very good reason to hate him. Um, I think uh, if anybody here uh, has an 18-year-old daughter, uh, I ask you what you would feel like if uh, one of your colleagues, I'm talking to the men here, uh, with whom you uh, have a friendly relationship, uh, who you've been inviting to dinner repeatedly over the last few months, runs off one night, marries your 18-year-old daughter without even telling you that that's what he's going to do. I don't think you'd be pleased. Um, so I can actually see it from Brabantio's point of view. Brabantio is racist. 
Iago is occasionally racist, but then Iago d uh, is, uh, hates Othello. Rodrigo is briefly and in a desultory fashion racist. Rodrigo hates Othello because he wants to marry Desdemona. Otherwise, I think it, a remarkable feature of this play is that the Venetian cabinet appoints this man commander-in-chief uh, of their task force to Cyprus without even really remarking upon the fact that they're appointing an African. Um, historically, they never appointed a Venetian. Um, they, they didn't want to appoint one of their own in charge of any of their armies because it would make one of their own uh, too powerful. But nevertheless, it's something which it's important to take on board. My view, and I think Adrian's view too, is that the play can be released to a degree from particularly the last 200 years of productions of it. We obviously plays carry are freighted with um, the history of their productions, and what a play means is it very often uh, includes the way it's been done uh, in the past. Uh, 400 years ago, Europeans already hated Jews uh, and were very well practiced at persecuting them. It's over the last two or three hundred years that Europeans have learned uh, to be violently racist. I mean, uh, life was no picnic, let's say, for, I mean, uh, for, um, for the Moors in Elizabethan London. Elizabeth I um, tried to expel them uh, just before she died. Uh, but I think a visiting Moroccan dignitary uh, would have had a much easier time uh, than um, than uh, a Jew wasn't they, they, they'd, they'd been expelled um, uh, centuries before anyway um, there was uh, there was less of a, a of a history of racism and we had not Europeans learned to be as racist uh, as we have been for the last two or three hundred years as we were as uh, uh, um, uh, uh, back in uh, 1604. The play has had to take on board what has happened uh, between Europeans and those of African extraction since, uh, and has done so bluntly in the most unpleasant fashion. Um, there was a, a whole period when the accepted literary critical line on the play was that uh, Othello was stripped by Iago of his veneer of civilization and an essential African barbarism was revealed underneath. It's complete nonsense. Uh, but that's how they did it. We're now at a place, I think, where we can see beyond it. That's what I hope. It's not that it's not there in the play, because, and it's not that it's not there in us, but I hope what we can now do is see that what goes wrong for Othello uh, is it, even he, when he says to himself, um, why might she be false to me? Perhaps because I'm black? Perhaps because I haven't those soft parts of conversation that a chamberer has? He's perhaps because I don't speak so well? Perhaps because I'm not Venetian, don't have the breeding? Perhaps because I'm declined into the veil of years? It's just one of a whole load of things that Iago is able to exploit. So, uh, and the consequences of him being a man of action suddenly Bored, having nothing to occupy his nothing mind. Nothing to do, so and, ver and very, very vulnerable. But so I, I'm, I hope that that what you can see tonight uh, is a play which uh, 
is to a degree released from uh, several centuries of um, violent European racism. Uh, and it is a different play to The Merchant of Venice. And I mean, I would say it, it not only is it absolutely released, but it's partly to do with the fact that you have other black actors in the company as soldiers, and you have some women. Yeah, so I see again. I, d I, don't, I think that's right, and I think, yeah. I think what we're saying is still, still the play, still the, and, the play. And, and is the, the thing play. is, he's still an outsider. That, you know, he's, he's trying... For, for you know, many, many reasons. And uh, one of for the many things, reasons. again, right at the very beginning, uh, the very, very early scene with Iago, he makes sense when he looks like, in his word, a bloke in a pub, mm. where he actually, you understand that he's been passed over by the beloved Othello, who is, he's always stood at his right-hand side, and what's he done? He's chosen one of those posher blokes instead. So it's almost they're pulling up the ladder, and that was what was very interesting about that first scene, which can be complicated. Yeah, you yeah. I think Iago, is, it starts off very straightforwardly. He's been passed over for a promotion, and, he re and, and his initial plan is to mess up Othello's wedding night. That's uh, poison, poison yeah. his delight. Yeah. That's all he starts off with. Let's really see whether we can make his wedding night miserable, you and I, he says to Rodrigo. Mm. Uh, and and this that, is that doesn't boy work. Boy it actually doesn't are, work. You know, they're a bit drunk and they're out yeah. for mischief. But it's quite important to know that. Iago's first plan doesn't work. He's not very successful in Venice because he's preempted before he can mess up the wedding night. Uh, the servants of the Duke arrive and Othello is pulled out of the hotel he's staying in with Desdemona, the Sagittary, uh, and asked to command um, the army to Cyprus. So Iago is really not that effective in Act One. And what happens to Iago, I think, is that bit by bit, scene by scene, line by line, he feels his way towards the next step and then the mm. next step. Mm. And he, because he can, because there's nothing stopping him, um, his malevolence is never checked. Uh, it and emerges. he feels powerful. Yeah. I mean, it makes him powerful. It does, but it emerges, I think, and I think this is what, what uh, the play is brilliant at doing. Uh, it emerges that the one thing he doesn't appear to have is any sense of what the consequences, um, is any visceral sense of what the consequences of what he m wants to do might be. Uh, he's, he's a creature of the present. Uh, he's, um, you might call him, if you were interested in diagnosing him, and I'm not really a sociopath or a psychopath, he has no empathy, uh, and uh, he, um, he never looks further, I think, than the end of his nose. Because if he did, he would realise there's no way he was going to get away scot-free out of the web that he's weaving. It's, in the end, going to uh, tangle him up in it as well. But... That's what's fascinating about him. He's not a man with a master plan. Uh, he's not a man um, who needs solving. There's a lot of fuss mm. about what, mm. are, what are his motives. He, he seems to have so many different motives. It's because uh, he is constantly in the present moment, which is something I think Rory Kinnear catches he absolutely the brilliantly. The what is so astonishing, I think, about Rory Kinnear's performance is that he comes across as a pretty weak, a bit annoying bloke rather than the great Machiavellian character that is often presented, and the look on his face at the very end. Yeah, don't spoil that. I'm not <laughs> going to. I, I've he's going to have a look on his face, Nick, whatever it is. Yeah. Um, but um, firstly, 
is the big challenge about casting, having an Iago and an Othello that do not eclipse one another, that they can seem like they have been brothers and that somehow this has fallen to pieces. Because often people talk about the great Iagos and the great Othellos, and they're not often, sometimes, but mostly they're not in the same production. Yeah. I mean, do you think that is the big challenge at the casting? Yeah, it, it may be, but it was it was never anything that I had to worry about because uh, you've got them. Cause, yeah, cause I, cause because I with their very good look on their face at the end. Yeah, um, but and also they are, you know they are but they they're both of them uh, they're both of them not just extraordinarily experienced but extraordinarily gifted Shakespearean actors. They both played Hamlet. Um, Adrian has played Henry V and Rosalind. I don't think there's many Othellos who've played Ro Rosalind uh, <laughs> uh, on the professional stage. Uh, it, it's, uh, but it's, uh, you know... Because um, Iago has more, uh, many more lines to start with, doesn't Not he? that many more, actually. Not at the beginning? Yes, yeah, the, the what, what happens is... Yeah, the, the, the Iago motors the first half and Othello motors the second half. Uh, and uh, what Iago has is a lot more opportunities to talk directly to the audience. He has many more soliloquies than Othello. And it's one of the, one of it's part of the play's evil genius that uh, Iago is able to make to make the audience complicit, uh, to make the audience mm. follow him through mm. and root for him and laugh with him, and it is the most it is the most uh, sick part of the uh, of the play's genius that Iago um, manages to make himself attractive. There is a beauty in the intimacy of the set, despite we're on the fact that we're on the Olivier stage and it's a wonderful set, the way that you make it smaller and smaller and finish the final scenes in a, a bedroom that is, is quite contained. But the language is what really struck out for me, the fact that Rory Kinnear and everybody else and Adrian Lester sound like they're talking to each other. It doesn't sound like... Uh, they are declaiming at any point. And that intimacy of the language, I think, is an extraordinary thing to hear in that play when so many of the phrases are familiar to the audience. It's a really interesting point, this. The, the received wisdom about the play over the last 20 years has been that it only works in a studio theatre because it is a play, most of which happens between two or three people in small rooms. It's an intense... Uh, D domestic is what it's sometimes called, although domesticity suggests home, and home is where they are definitely not. Now, if you've been here before, one of the things I've often returned to is my insistence that at this theatre, the National Theatre, we can't do Shakespeare for 250 people at a time. It, these have to be big public plays. So the challenge I had here, and it was maybe the biggest challenge of all, uh, was to present this play, which has, it is thought, been working much, much better in small rooms than large, um, in this, the biggest, the biggest room of all. Uh, now, there's no theoretical problem there because, um, as you say, the language uh, is, the language and the passions and the themes are huge. They are huge, involving things which should be able to take along um, 1,200 people at a time. Vicky Mortimer, who designed this uh, show, and I worked um, through many different versions uh, before we came up with this version. You will find, if you're keeping an eye on it, that a hell of a lot of it happens in very small rooms mm. in the middle of this vast stage. Mm. And one of the things that I've been quite pleased with and proud of is that I'm not sure 
um, to most of the house, that's what it feels like. I hope it, feel, I hope it feels intimate. I hope it feels claustrophobic. But I hope you don't feel that um, we're not using the stage because I, I, I think that there is a sufficient movement and a sufficient variety in it um, for that not to happen. But the other thing that's happening is you're in the hands um, not just of Adrian and Rory, I want to give a, uh, uh, some acknowledgement here to Olivia Vinall and Lindsay Marshall yes. and, um, and the whole cast, Jonathan Bailey and, um, and Matt Robertson, um, all of whom are actors who can take this language and do two things with it. Um, acknowledge, when it needs to be acknowledged, the size of it, the passion mm. of it, but also speak it as if it was written yesterday, as if they think that way. That I just... This, I'm just going to, I, I brought my copy along specifically to do this. This is a play where within minutes of each other, uh, within a handful of pages of each other, in the one scene, in the great, great scene, Act 3, Scene 3, which is the scene where Iago persuades Othello that, um, that uh, Desdemona's been sleeping with Cassio, you have both dialogue like this. This is, although it's in verse, this dialogue could have been written yesterday. Um, give or take a few of the, uh, a few of the uh, Elizabethan words. Iago and his wife, Emilia. Um, Emilia is in Othello's office. She shouldn't be. Um, Iago, how now? What do you hear alone? Emilia, do not you chide. I have a thing for you. You have a thing for me? It's a common thing. What? To have a foolish wife. Oh, is that all? Says his wife. What will you give me now for that same handkerchief? Iago, what handkerchief? Emilia, what handkerchief? Why, that the Moor first gave to Desdemona, that which so often you did bid me steal. Iago, has stolen it from her? He, he, Emilia, no faith, she let it drop by negligence, and to the advantage I being here took it up. Look, here it is. Iago, give it me. That is naturalistic dialogue. That's dialogue, that is almost dialogue that could have been written yesterday. Five pages later, Othello. Never, Iago, like to the Pontic Sea, whose icy current and compulsive course ne'er feels retiring ebb, but keeps due on to the Propontic and the Hellespont. Even so, my bloody thoughts with violent pace shall ne'er look back, ne'er ebb to humble love, till that a capable and wide revenge swallow them up. Adrian does that in about one breath. So it's, uh, <laughs> this play contains both, and there's nothing a director can do about that problem, that's an actor's problem. And <laughs> the fact is, they can all do it, and I'm very lucky. <laughs> <laughs> Those of you who have not yet seen it are about to see one of the most astonishing productions from an incredible ensemble and stellar company. Um, and it all lies in the hands of this man and the work that he has done with this company. So ladies and gentlemen, please could you say thank you to Nicholas Heitner. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.